again, I want to thank each one of you who have joined with us here in person this morning. Also, for everyone who's joining with us online, we welcome you. And especially as we take times of communion together here as brothers and sisters, I encourage anyone who's watching online to, to either come join with us or join with your local church body that we can physically gather together and worship our Lord in the ways that he has prescribed. It's so appropriate this morning as we begin the year that we begin it gathered around the Lord's table. The last few weeks of Christmas messages from the Gospels have reminded me so much of the need to keep the work and person of Christ central to our hearts and our thoughts year-round. This morning we're going to be getting back into the book of Hebrews, and this book does that, keeping Christ central better than almost any other. It's impossible to read the book of Hebrews and come away with a, without a deeper appreciation for the real greatness and the glory of Christ. That leads us to an awareness of Christ, and it means that we are faced with the truth of the gospel. And confronted with that truth, we meet the decision of whether or not we are going to persevere in the truth or we are going to go our own way. Our last message some months ago from Hebrews was taken out of Hebrews 6, starting in verse 4, which was a grave warning. It said, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." That was not the lightest nor the most feel-good of warnings, especially recognizing that our author here seeks to have his brothers and sisters persevere unto the end in their faith. And thankfully, our passage today comes on the heels of that one, bringing some soothing balm for the sting of the last warning. So would you pray with me as we get into the into today's passage. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we gather together this morning before you, knowing that you have provided both warnings and blessings. You have provided both histories and prophecies and all of these things in your word. Lord, you have provided them that we might know you and we might come to glorify you. And Lord, we pray that we would take your word and receive it into our hearts and apply it to our lives. I pray for each one who is gathered here, either in person or online this morning, as we enter this new year, that you would cause us to seek after you more wholeheartedly. This is a season of renewed commitments, many of them to be broken and forgotten before the month is out. But Lord, that 
as we commit to seek you in more and deeper and more real ways, we pray that those commitments would not be forgotten, that we might wholeheartedly follow after you. We are aware of our brothers and sisters who are not among us today for one reason or another. We think of our brother Ralph as he continues to heal in hospital. Lord, we pray that his kidney function would return to full health, and Lord, that you would cause that to happen either through the miraculous touch of your hand or by your work through the medical staff that are attending to him. We pray that he would be able to gather together with us, and in the meantime, that you would bless Carol and Ian and his family, that uh, they would have the peace and the perseverance to press through in the midst of a time of great discomfort. Lord, we also pray for our brother Tom Goulet as he goes to visit an uncle in hospital today. We ask that as he goes that you would give him the words to say and comfort in his heart that he might display your gospel before his family member that his uncle Jerry would come away very clearly aware of the truth of your word and the great news found in your gospel. For those of us who can't come out because of COVID lockdowns or other ways of being shut in, Lord, we pray that you would continue to strengthen and encourage them, that you would empower your church as we walk out your truth You would empower us to go to these people who haven't been able to join with us and meet with them in whatever way we can and that we might encourage them in the faith. And Lord, as your word is preached this morning, we pray that it would be preached to ground fertilized by your Holy Spirit, ready to receive your word and apply it. That you would cause my words to be your words. That your scripture would be placed before the people for the good of those who believe and for your glory. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning is Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. And this piece of scripture comes across to me as so intensely pastoral. From a extremely severely worded warning. Our author follows up with this. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Know this, brothers and sisters, that this is my heart as I preach the majority of my messages to this church. The vast percentage of the time I feel like I'm preaching to the choir especially when I'm preaching on warning passages like this that preceded ours this morning. 
But I hope, as I'm sure the author of this passage did, that the warnings are used by the Spirit to encourage the faithful to continue in their faithfulness. Nevertheless, I love when passages I come to in the preaching schedule make my heart explicit. Notice that the author gives the warning, really, really stirring the pot first. Like I said when we looked at the warning passage a couple months ago, um, warnings such as these are tools used by God to help keep people, keep his people. If the author had opened his salvo with this caveat of, I don't really think this applies to most of you, but it wouldn't have stirred the same thoughts and soul-searching in the hearts of those who are listening, even the true believers. The apostate in this case probably would have just lumped themselves in with the, well, that doesn't apply to me camp, and just kept on. How many of you have ever seen or even been in the situation where a parent stands in front of several kids and says, what am I about to say? Or even better, you all have 10 seconds. Someone had better fess up. The guilty party starts squirming like they're standing on a fire ant hill. And even the innocent ones are sitting there in their head going back through all of the wrong things they've ever done, going, am I, am I good? This isn't for me, right? Wanting to make sure that they're in the clear. Those moments are similar to the divinely ordained discomfort that attends the readings of warnings such as these. And they are a gift from God. When we see these warnings, even if we know that we are in the faith, even that we know that we are doing all we can to follow our Lord, even if we know that we have believed, those warnings still kind of stir up something in us and it's a, like I said, divinely ordained discomfort. And it forces us to take stock of our own standing before God. Have I fallen away? Am I crucifying once again the Son of God to my own harm and holding him up to contempt? Such questions as these absolutely should cause us to, to shudder, even as believers. But that's not where the true believer lives. For a believer, there are many scriptures that pertain to the security of your salvation. Favorite of mine is Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that passage. But I am sure in my salvation at least in part because of the warnings that I've received against falling away, that God is using those to make me more sure in my salvation. And so the author of Hebrews gives such a warning, but he doesn't leave us there. If you are indeed the target of such a warning, you have apostatized from the faith, then you will be and you will rightly be stung by those words 
and you need to deal with it. But then for the believer, there comes a, a soothing voice. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. As a pastor, this verse speaks volumes to me. The warmth and the caring for the flock is beautiful. It also brings up a challenge for those of us who find ourselves in the work of ministry, whether it be pastors or elders or deacons or otherwise. When the author says that they feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, that puts something of an onus on us who are in ministry. It becomes our responsibility to know the flock well enough to have some sort of confidence one way or another. Lord willing, we'll eventually get to Hebrews thirteen seventeen in our preaching series, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping a watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. How can I account for what I do not know? That could easily lead to a whole amazing discussion on the value and benefit of church membership. But that is a rabbit hole I'm not going to dive down yet. But the encouragement for us this morning, particularly for those engaged in ministry, but not only for those engaged in ministry, is that we must know each other. Not just superficially, not just the basic, I know your name and how many kids you have and roughly which town around the lakeland you live in. But we must know each other like family. So particularly when myself or another elder are poked and prodded by the Holy Spirit to dig a little deeper in conversations with you than many of us private Westerners are comfortable with, don't be surprised. If you and I go out for coffee or out for coffee with one of the elders or other leaders within the church and you go from how was the fishing to, so how's your marriage? Or how can I be praying for you? What's been on your heart lately? It's not a conversation we're used to, but it is a conversation that is necessary so that we can know each other and be able to say that we are confident that in your case, we're sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I was reading the great 17th century theologian John Owen. He is brilliant, but he is so incredibly deep. But when he was talking about this passage and talking about the work of the ministry, he said, it is our duty to come unto the best satisfaction we may in the spiritual condition of them with whom we are to have spiritual communion. A general preaching at random turns the whole work, for the most part, both in preachers and hearers, into a useless formality. He that is a physician under the bodies of men must acquaint himself with the special estate and condition of his patients, as also of their distempers, wherein his skill and judgment are especially exercised. 
Without that, let him be furnished with the greatest store of good medicines. If you give them out promiscuously unto all comers, all that he does will be of little use. It may be his medicines being safe will do no harm. And it is as probable they will do as little good. Nor will it be otherwise with the physicians of the souls in like case. That's particular to the ministry of the word. And maybe the temptation will be for everyone else to sigh and sit back and say, I'm glad this job description isn't my job description. That I don't have to be able to make assessments like this. But unfortunately for you, this applies more broadly also to the church as a whole. How then does our individual confidence and knowledge of each other come into play? Let me ask you, according to Scripture, how is the world supposed to know that we are disciples of Christ? Jesus gave us one criterion John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my, my disciples if you have love for one another. This is being said to the disciples at the Last Supper, being said to obvious believers. The world will know the disciples of Christ by the unique sort of love that we are to have for one another. And no doubt we are supposed to show a common love to all of God's image bearers on earth. Um, doesn't matter whether we have a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic brother or sister. It's Each one deserves a, a common love that arises from us being able to recognize some intrinsic value that finds its root in the fact that each man and each woman does, as they exist, bear the image of their maker. But there's something special that is meant to occur in the relationships between believers. We are to have a kind of love for each other that sticks out so obviously that the world will notice the way that we interact with one another as believers. But close to a third of the almost 8 billion people on earth claim one way or another to be some version or variant of Christianity. Is this love for fellow believers meant to be given to all alike? Is the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witness in the same category? What about the syncretistic communities that piggyback voodoo and Christianity or traditional religions with Catholicism and kind of mix all of this stuff together, are those under the same instructions? As a believer, it is your responsibility to have such a relationship with the Lord and to develop from the Lord a discernment required to say things like, in your case, we feel sure of better things. You need to know what you believe well enough to know whether a person even fits within that category. And you need to know each other well enough to say the same. 
I'm not saying that we're sitting here casting judgment and going, well, I don't think that person's saved, but I think that person is. But we need to know at the very least what it means to be saved. And if a person professes to believe that, we in charity, we need to be able to say, you know what, in your case, I, you have shown that same kind of change and effect in your life that makes me believe that you are, in fact, a brother or a sister. And that unique love that comes from, from Christ to his people that we share within the church can be shown in that relationship. And anyways, I am so thankful that as a pastor, I'm able to say with confidence of my church that I am sure of better things for this congregation. The second part of our passage this morning that I wanted to look at is from verse 10, which says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. The concern I have here is that we understand that this is not a transactional, works-based situation. The works and the love that you show in God's name doesn't earn you something that God then has to repay. This passage has been used wrongly regularly by the Roman Catholic Church, justifying the meritorious character of good works believing that by our good works, we can make satisfaction for some of our own sins. If you are good enough, you can make up for some of your own mistakes. All the man-made righteousness in the world can't earn us one ounce of holiness before God. In Philippians 3, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. God owes us nothing. Our righteous acts don't earn us a deserved response from God. But God does in his mercy regard the things that we do in his name for his glory. When I shovel our driveway at home, which looks like I'm going to have to do when I get home, sometimes I get the privilege of having a couple helpers. Helpers that spread the snow around, start shoveling snow from the piles on the side of the driveway onto the driveway. But when we get inside, Sherry makes us all hot chocolate. I thank my kids profusely for helping me shovel. I, I know that I shoveled, but I regard my kids fumbling, frozen, sometimes unhelpful attempts with the kind love of a father. Not necessarily because they actually did anything, but because I love them. And I see their heart's desire to participate in the work that I'm doing. 
And then in giving, the hot chocolate and the accolades saying, thank you for helping me clear the snow. I'm rewarding my children for something that I just did. And praise God, he does the same thing for us. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God commands us to be righteous. He declares us to be righteous through the justifying work of Christ. He makes us progressively more righteous through his own sanctifying work. Then he rewards our righteousness that he himself has wrought in us. If you can't see the good news here, I don't know what else to say. When I'm measured before the commands and warnings of Scripture, like the one that precedes ours, I'm tempted, as I'm sure this audience was, to despair of any hope that I'm going to persevere unto the end. But instead of burying his audience further, our author comes in with that sweetest of news. I know you. I know your hearts. I'm sure you're not among the apostates. Not only that, God sees the good work that you've been doing because he has enabled you to do so, and he's going to reward you for it. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There's nothing unspiritual about finding motivation in the Christian life in the promise of heavenly reward. Sometimes we get this mixed up of, oh, well, I shouldn't be focusing on God's promises about heaven and rewards and heaven and that guy's. I should just be focused on Jesus. Well, yeah, we should be focused on Jesus, but he includes those rewards for a reason. We're even commanded to build up for ourselves treasures in heaven. God uses these promises. Just how this warning doesn't necessarily apply to the faithful who are going to persevere God uses those warnings anyways to keep them. The promises of heavenly reward are not the reason that we persevere and are saved, but God uses these promises to encourage our perseverance on our earthly race. Then he offers an exhortation in verses 11 and 12. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't quit. This warning isn't directed you, directed at you, unless it is. I'm sure of what God is doing in you and that he'll reward you for it. And knowing that, keep going. The whole purpose of this book is to spur the believers on to enduring faith that perseveres unto the end. So don't let off the gas. The Christian life is not one where we can hit that one milestone and coast out. We don't eventually pray that one prayer that tips us over the edge and then we can kind of just ride out the rest. I've seen lots of great and sadly entertaining videos of people celebrating too early. The runner finishing a marathon throws up his arms and slows down right at the end and someone comes and hits the line before they do. The motorcycle race where a guy thinks he's got it made and pops a wheelie right at the end and someone flies by him. The hockey goalie who relaxes and celebrates a save that he just made only have it dribble out of his pads and into the net. These people are celebrating too early. And 
these cautionary tales are endless. We as believers must run our race until we see Christ face to face. Then and only then can we take our foot off the gas. Until then, we continue in the works and in the life that God has given us. And that doesn't come without benefits in this life either. The author here who is already convinced that the bulk of the audience is saved desires that they will show the same earnestness. Why? To have the full assurance of hope unto the end. I've spoken with many brothers and sisters who spend their whole lives kind of wavering on that precipice of their assurance of their salvation. Am I truly saved? Always wondering if they're enough. But the more we persevere in our pursuit of God and the things that would bring him glory, the more it fills up our hope. And that hope is the source of the joy that's found in the Christian life. First Peter gives a beautiful flow of this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you have a faith like this, you cannot but pursue Christ and obey his commands. Your desires become conformed to his desires. And so you find full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you won't become sluggish in your faith. If you have indeed trusted in Christ, then you are saved. There's nothing changing that. He has chosen his people before the creation of the world. But you can squander the time and opportunities that you are given on this earth. I mean, you can see this in the life of the church worldwide. Millions of people calling themselves Bible-believing evangelical Christians. Churches of dozens and thousands and tens of thousands. But the pattern remains the same. In any church, you can often look around and physically see the people who have determined that their faith would be used for God's glory through their actions. You can see the people who have committed, you know what, I'm a part of this church, I'm a part of this family, and I'm going to put my faith to work in this church, in this family, for the glory of God. First Peter 4, the church has commanded that as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. These are the ones who have a vital rather than a sluggish faith. The ones who have determined to discover, cultivate, and use their gifts to serve one another 
that being the church. Last thought as we close this morning. These who are to maintain a vital faith are told to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I encourage you all to become students of the faithful generations before you, both immediate and of centuries past and of Scripture. Whether it's those who are mature in the faith around us who sit here in church with you on a Sunday, or those men and women used mightily by God throughout church history. If you want to know what a real and vital Christian walk looks like and how you can have it, look around at your brothers and sisters. Find the elders and the deacons and other mature men and women of Christ who are pursuing him wholeheartedly and using their gifts. And imitate them as they imitate Christ. No one's perfect, save Christ. But in the ways that your brothers and sisters are faithful, imitate their faithfulness. So we are to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And I am so thankful that I am a pastor of a church at age 30, but I have so many brothers and sisters within this church that I can look around and happily imitate the way that they have remained faithful to the calling that they've received. And I love that I can look around this church and see brothers and sisters younger than me and say, I want to remain faithful and be someone that they can imitate as they want to follow Christ. Brothers and sisters, we, the shepherds of Elk Point Baptist Church, are blessed that we can feel sure of better things for you, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust just as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire that each of you show that same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope unto the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith, faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we pray that each one of us, as you have gifted us, would discover and cultivate and use the gifts that you've given us for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray that in doing so, we might display what you have worked within us. That you have, out of none of our own doing, called us to yourself, justified us, sanctified us, and Lord, that one day if we persevere in our faith that you will glorify us alongside of you. That we might come and see you face to face and worship you. God, we pray that we would be believers who are worth emulating. 
for those who come after us. And Lord, when we fall down, when we are at our absolute least imitatable, Lord, we thank you that you have given us a body of fellow brothers and sisters who can help pick us back up. That you have given us your Holy Spirit within our hearts that testify to the fact that we are chosen before the creation of the world, that we are adopted as sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, and that we can lean and rely on you to pull us up, even as one sinking in the waves gets pulled up by Christ, we can hold on to you and once again walk alongside of you. Walk in your commandments and in your light and in your truth. God, I pray that my brothers and sisters here and that I myself would be one who perseveres in this faith unto the end, to your glory. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me as you're able to hear our benediction from Hebrews 13. And now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.